Okay, welcome to episode three of PhD Pandemic. I hope you are all doing well out there and that um, whatever supplies you have are lasting. Um, as you will know from previous episodes, I have made my way very quickly through my Daryl Lee chocolate. So um, yes, my self-control is not great. Um, on today's episode, I'm really excited to be joined by Tash. Um, and I'm really excited to hear about Tash's research. Hi, Tash. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, uh, although I too have run out of my Daryl Lee chocolate and uh, have been threatening my family with eating theirs if they don't um, get a move on. Uh, okay, so did you buy some for everyone thinking that that was a good good plan? Yeah, yeah. I stocked up uh, thinking, oh, yeah, this will all be over by Easter and bought all my uh, my brother and uh, my nephews their eggs and half of them have already gone uh, and I think we'll be getting pretty close to me attacking the rest soon. Look, I can I can sympathise with you. Um, it's... <laughs> I went through this phase of thinking as well that, you know, this will be over soon. I might go back and see my family for Easter. Um, and now that we kind of see that it's, it's really drawing out, I'm thinking, okay, do I, do I send my family an Easter gift? Do I just forget about them and buy it all for me? Um, my mum's already asking about Easter presents. Um, I think she's got a vibe of what I'm thinking. <laughs> I what's funny though is that I've got a couple of eggs for my nephews that are uh let's just say not the best quality chocolate uh I won't name a brand uh but they're still there uh <laughs> will know things are desperate if I get if I if I hit on the really bad crap um chocolate for the kids <laughs> that is that is so true I think my level of desperation will be going to instant coffee right now I'm still doing the French press every day but I think if the instant coffee comes out things are getting pretty yeah. desperate Let's talk about your PhD, I guess. Can you tell me a bit about what's your PhD all about? Yeah, uh, thanks for your interest to start with. it's uh, I'm doing a history PhD at La Trobe Uni in Bendigo. And uh, the topic is the, <laughs> I want to say cheerful, but it's so not cheerful, childhood death on the goldfields, um, mm. specifically accidental deaths um, of children during the 19th century on the central Victorian goldfields with uh, a focus on the faith responses of the community to those deaths. So it's a, it's not an easily encapsulated in one little pithy sentence, uh, but I also, I just say yeah, childhood death on the goldfields. Wow. I, <laughs> like I spoke previous episode of someone doing a law PhD and law PhDs seem very confusing to me, but a history PhD, what led you to, I guess, what first, what led you to thinking, okay, history is an area I, I want to look at, but then this topic specifically? Well, okay, so more generally, um, the short version, again, is I went back to university in 2013 after leaving my full-time work and did an arts degree because I just hadn't done university before and thought that looks interesting. Give it a go. Uh, can't be that hard. Uh, turns out I really liked history and all through my undergrad I was picking up history subjects and doing really well at them and I really enjoyed the uh, social um, historical aspect of it, so people's stories. And by the time I finished my honours degree I'd done well enough that 
the university offered me um, uh, to be part of one of their projects to do a PhD with them. And the overall project is faith on the gold fields generally, and that's a, a Bendigo-specific thing. Uh, and they were like, you can choose any topic as long as it's got a faith um, aspect to it, which given I'm an atheist, a lot of my friends find highly amusing, but it's actually turned out really useful because I'm coming at this from with a very clean slate uh, on, on all things faith related and it's been really interesting but the childhood part of it for me was simply a matter of no one's done this before I assumed when the idea came into my head that you know let's look at childhood generally on the gold fields thinking about going to places like Sovereign Hill when I was a kid that there would be heaps of info about it and there isn't there's hardly anything about childhood history generally let alone specifically in relation to gold rushes, let alone specifically about children who died. And I got to the death part because of the faith aspect, trying to find something that specifically uh, was in relation to faith and sources around it. And really my topic was led a lot by what evidence and resources there were available for me to look at which is inquest records uh, look i know that um and I, you probably have had this question before and it's probably frustrating but people um even of my own research um in in digital health kind of say you know what's the point of your research you're not you're not finding a cure for like cancer or covid19 can you tell me what what's important about looking back at history and really you know asking these questions uh that is such a great question and actually one that I don't think is asked often enough. Uh, what, yeah, why am I, what's the point of this? Looking back at the history and especially in relation to childhood death, it tells us where we've come from and why we are doing things the way we're doing them now. And the COVID-19 um, response is actually really interesting for me because knowing now what I do about how we got to having the public health and uh, public safety uh, responses that we do, one of my big arguments that I'm coming to in my thesis is that a lot of that's been around us providing safe environments for our children. And so using my research as an example, here in Bendigo, we have an environment that has been completely changed by gold mining. The impact of mining on the landscape, not just the way it looks, but also what still remains in the dirt. Uh, you know, we have high arsenic and mercury levels in the soil. And so what's the impact of that for children still today playing in the soil? So I look back at what happened to children back in the 1850s and 1860s and what was the public response to that. And it seems like children drowning in dams, children um, falling down mine shafts, a lot of the responses around those um, accidents and deaths, and there were a lot of them, there were thousands of deaths in very horrible circumstances, the responses of public officials were to do things like say you have to have dams fenced, you have to cap 
the mine shafts. We have to be aware of what we're putting in the water. And so today we have those situations where we have that sort of health and safety, but also um, public health responses to children dying. It, it kind of sounds like your job doing this PhD is being a little bit of a detective and linking up past with the present and maybe even the future. How, how do you do that? Like I, I go out and collect interviews in my PhD, but how, how do you tackle these questions and start to link up these narratives? Uh, that is um, that's something that my supervisor would like to know the answer to as well. Um, but a lot of what I'm doing is, uh, so I mentioned inquest records. Uh, I originally started with looking at inquest records because I thought that might be where I would find um, children's voices in the archives because I thought we, we don't hear anything about what children said 150 years ago. We might hear about what adults say about children, but we don't get much directly from the child's mouth. And so I thought, well, maybe children playing around other children, they might see them die and there might be investigations into it. So I went to the archives and lo and behold, did find a um, really sad amount of children that see their friends and uh, siblings dying. But out of that was also a lot of information that you can put together and, as you said, like a detective, piece together family and community information, cross-referencing info out of those inquest records such as juries. You know, there might be 12 people in a jury and you get those names that have signed an inquest um, hearing record, cross-reference those with um, first deaths and marriages, cemetery records, uh, land titles, things in the newspapers at the time. There's a wonderful database called Trove run by the National Library of Australia that I pretty much live in. So it's a lot of cross-referencing information and piecing it together and you work out things like, well, when little Johnny died, his um, father gave evidence to say you know, what had happened, but also his father was then um, a jury member in another child's death six months later for someone who he ended up owning a mine with. And those two families were then interconnected through the system. And that shows how communities are built. So we don't see them just as all individual families or people living on the one um, uh, goldfield together, they were all very tightly interconnected. And it just shows us how those towns started and were built around things like their children dying. Mm, okay. Sorry, I, I love this topic and I can talk about it forever. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's fascinating. And it's something I'd never really thought of like as a public health person we are always taught about how you know history influences what we do now in the future but I never really thought of you know these more I guess discrete elements of lives and how you can knit them together to start to see these bigger pictures it's really interesting mm, it's uh I, I kind of call it in my head pattern tracking uh I I am terrible at things like theory and historiography uh, and the, the how of things happen. I And this is a discussion I have with my supervisor a lot. I just sort of put all of the data there in front of me 
and start crunching through all of the stories and the numbers and eventually patterns will start to come out for me and then I can go back over it again and go yeah this is this is a thing that is happening repeatedly through the information and uh it's it's a really exciting but long and drawn out process so you've got to sort of sift through a lot of um less than exciting information to get to the good stuff Mm, okay where where does this go like where where do you see this going uh, maybe at the end of the phd into or even where do you see your research being used in the future or where do you hope it might be used um honestly at this point uh it, that's really hard for me to say because um i i think it would be useful in public policy certainly in bendigo at the moment we're having a lot of discussions about what to do with the um, the water table. We have a, a very high water table here that is um, uh, still recovering from the mining that we were doing uh, and we still have mining going on. So it's it would be a matter of it being, I think, an interdisciplinary approach. And I went to a conference recently where there were a lot of, um, where we had people from, now, I can't remember the exact term of it, but it was a geology term and it was to do with river morphology. Uh, but it was geologists looking at the impacts of mining on rivers and on water. And when we brought in the historians who were able to say, well, the reason that the water is like this is because these were the mining techniques 150 years ago. Um and then you can come in with something like that I'm looking at of, and these mining techniques were changed in that way because of the responses to childhood deaths and public health. That's where we start moving forward to say, okay, well, this is what we need to do in response to mining today. And not just necessarily mining, but other public health issues. So while my head has been very much in a, a history world, I'm sort of starting to pop it, pop up above the parapets and go, hang on, uh, this has applications in other disciplines and public health is the one that seems the, the most direct to me. I'm also looking at art, um, uh, art representations and that, but that's a whole nother story. What I, uh, that's my dream of what I'd like to do is a, um, uh, get some art, artistic responses to what I've been working on. Wow, that is just, I, I just love the interdisciplinary nature of it. And it's type of it's a type of interdisciplinariness that I, I'd never even thought of pulling together. Um, that's really awesome, Tash. <laughs> Thanks. And that's not my idea. That was the, the, the conference I was uh, volunteering at a few weeks ago and I just sort of sat there with my jaw open going, oh, my God, it all makes sense now. That's so cool. Um, and I love those moments of just like, wow, this this all fits together. Uh, I think it's some of the best moments of a PhD. It's been, it was really good too because why this is, it's become a bit clearer about why this is important to me personally. I grew up in Bendigo playing around all of these mine shafts that 
I've, I've now been researching and my mum would say things like, you know, be careful where you, you step, you might fall down a mine shaft. And we used to think she was being, you know, either overcautious or just making stuff up. And then reading all of the material I have been, I'm going, oh, no, no, she was right. There literally are mine shafts that you can just fall into randomly. Um, and we would play in the mullock heaps and I'm not a mullock heap or a slag heap as it's also called is all of the leftover bits from a big mining operation. And when you drive through Bendigo, you'll see a lot of empty reserves or what look like empty reserves with just bushland on them. That's land that really can't be used because it used to be mining and the soil's contaminated or it's just all old. You know, rocks left over from um, a gold mine and we would play in them and the soils you know got a really high arsenic level um, and, and so now I'm writing this stuff and going oh okay all of these stories are really making a lot of sense and are still really relevant for children living in Bendigo and other mining towns today. Yeah and Thanks to that public service announcement, you know, don't play near mine shafts, everyone. Um, you may actually fall down one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I guess you're doing this PhD at the moment in the midst of, of the pandemic. How is that going? Uh, it is interesting, to put it politely. Um, I, I'm actually also the uh, full-time carer for my mum. I live with my mother and um, two cats. I am the classic crazy cat lady in her 40s. Uh, but I also have a really high anxiety level at the best of times. So this week I kind of peaked, um, really super stressed out, mainly because I just keep overthinking, you know, what's going on and what's the point of it all. In terms of getting my any work done, I I pretty much shut down for almost a week. I didn't get anything done and it was really annoying because I'd been on a really good run uh, of writing and I'm at the writing up stage so I need to be writing every day and I just sort of shut down because I was busily trying to reorganise my life around working from home um, and sorting out things for mum getting my other my own health issues sorted out uh so it was a lot of life administration and setting up uh my systems to do everything from home now for the foreseeable future and yeah and then having a an anxiety meltdown in the middle of it where i just froze and I don't know if how much you or listeners know about anxiety but it's different for different people and for me I go in a cycle of either I'll go shut down and do nothing and then go frantic so I now have a, an amazingly organized pantry uh, my um, study area is so clean and neat and tidy uh, but then I'll freeze again and then I'll go frantic again. And it just sort of starts upping the ante each cycle until I just sort of flop. And I did the flop on about uh, Tuesday this week, and thankfully because I've worked out exactly what's happening and I've gotten better at doing that, I was able to recognise that I was coming up to that. 
and was able to ring my GP um, and get some help with that, which was really important. And I've been talking to my friends who were going through this, I think, for the first time about recognising when you need to be able to say, okay, I actually need some, some help with this. So in terms of the impact on my PhD, I literally only started writing again last night. Um, and it's hard because my topic is so intense. I am reading um, inquest records. I'm reading about the history of really upsetting topics. So putting that together with the situation that we find ourselves in right now um, is, is a bit of a load for my, um, my poor little brain. Sorry, bit of a dump there. <laughs> Yeah, no, thank you for sharing. I think there's a lot of people who are probably feeling the same way. And as you said, maybe for the first time, they're feeling this overwhelming sense of anxiety. And it's kind of, um, I think it's it's interesting for someone who lives in, in the city, because we obviously had the bushfires recently. And that was so much easier for someone in the city to switch off from. But now that you know we're in lockdown, even if you do switch off from the news, you still have this sense of foreboding that life has changed now and it's hard to switch that mm, off. Mm, very much. And, I mean, in during the bushfire period here in Bendigo and I was um, actually down in, uh, down around, Dunkeld, which is um, sort of southwestern Victoria. I have to always remember the compass when I do that. Um, down the Grampians. And the anxiety out in the sort of the regional and the country areas was very high and very real for a lot of people and you couldn't turn off. Um, and certainly now it's it's strange. Like I would normally go for a daily walk with, uh, a friend of mine who lives up the road and uh, we're now going oh well we, we we did the distancing we were walking apart from each other but it's it's becoming harder and harder so now I'm sort of just going to the end of my driveway and having a chat with her at the end of the driveway rather than being able to um, really go for a long walk with her because we're at that level of quarantine now um it's everything has to be thought about everything takes you know 20 minutes 30 minutes longer to sort out and when you're already caring for someone who has their own um health issues working around how to get their medicine to them working out how to get their treatments what priorities are happening do we need to be out on the road having to think about every sort of thing as well as hang on, I don't have that book with that reference about that weird gun that they used to use in 1850. Where's that? <laughs> so it's just, yeah, not happening. Yeah, yeah. And I can, I can, um, I understand that feeling of being a carer as a carer myself that there's so many unknowns at the moment and I feel that every day you kind of get a little breadcrumb of information and that can set set up the anxiety all over again. Mm -hmm. um, mm. Well, when we got our first case of COVID notified here in Bendigo, it, it jumped from two to 10 in one day. Um, and apart from me having my usual rant at people who didn't understand how that had happened and I sat there going, did you not do exponential maths in high school? 
and then remembered that maybe a lot of people didn't, um, that it's been steady, but I'm checking it every day, you know, what's the rate like in Bendigo? What's the rate like here? Because we live three blocks away from the hospital um, and we're seeing nurses and doctors walking back to their cars absolutely exhausted already and this is, you know, just this is out in the regions. It's not in the middle of the city. Uh, so it's early days and I just have this, like you said, sense of foreboding that it's it's going to get worse um, and trying to keep our morale up um, in a house with no privacy. I'm, I'm separated from my partner now. He's in Melbourne. Um, so I'm not getting any, which is also a problem. Um, <laughs> even though they managed to clarify that, yes, partners can see each other, that doesn't really help me when he's in Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> Not, not to mention he's living with people with immuno I, I, immune system issues and and someone in quarantine. So, yeah, mm. it sort of piles up and you start to go, all right, the, the PhD is just going to have to maybe take a back seat for a bit because I'm also not getting any of the extra work that I would normally be doing. So there's the money as well. Anyway, <laughs> boo-boo. Yeah. Um, I've never felt more good about being single at this point in time that I don't have to oh, um, try and manage all these complexities. Oh, my God, that's what's really annoying is I was single for so long and I was fine with it. And then I got a taste of the good life and it's been taken away from me. And I'm like, no, no, it was really good having regular fun. I'd like that back, please. What do you mean? I ah, oh, damn. All right, we're back to single life. Okay. Um, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. It's like you've got your cats. Like I've been thinking maybe I need a cat now. Yeah, you should definitely get a cat. They are highly amusing. Uh, I did spend quite a bit of time with mum yesterday tying things to one of the cats, uh, which kept us highly amused for at least half an hour. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh... <laughs> yeah. And. I have so many photos of my cats now. Uh, I think my friends are going to kill me. But um, it is bizarre how um, uh, easily some cat photos and cat videos will soothe the soul. Mm, yeah, I just recently I discovered TikTok. I, I didn't really know what TikTok was until about two days ago, and there are so many cat videos of TikTok. It is giving <laughs> Have you seen the... Um, the video, the TikToks they're doing of um, ScoMo um, having a go at Andrew. Oh, so good. Yes, it's hilarious. Oh, good. Look, from a historian's point of view, there is so much material being produced right now that in 100 years' time, people are begun, just, they'll be going, what were you on? Um and the yeah, the Andrew stuff is just priceless. <laughs> um, so I guess back on the topic of pandemic life um, and PhD. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, so I guess a lot of us in the PhD world have been looking at our universities and kind of screaming out for support. Um, can you tell me about the experience you're having of getting support of a type of support you might need in this time from your university? Um. Well, it's it's weird. Um, the university is it seems to be both. Uh, they really want to try to help, 
and they are I, I can see they're doing some really uh, good work generally for all students uh, and I, I think I can see the hand of the um, uh, the Chancellor in that, our Chancellor's um, uh, John Brumby, uh, former Premier of Victoria, and they responded with a pretty comprehensive financial package for students in need very early. They hit the ground running with that. That's for all students. In terms of um, postgrads, it's been um, a bit different. It's, it's been much slower to give us specifics about what we can uh, see coming in the future. And I can understand that's been difficult for them, but it's ANU have certainly been leading the way in terms of extending um the process giving us you know say a six month extension because my certainly my anxiety is around the basis of I'm meant to be submitting in March that's not going to happen the way the rate that I'm working at now I can't see me submitting in March and that's with the already you know the already existing extensions that we have available because of things of like life and caring responsibilities have have impacted this um, social, um, the society-wide impact of COVID is beyond normal extenuating circumstances. It's like its own extenuating, extenuating. Everyone needs to have a blanket six-month extension so that we can at least take a breath and go, I can deal with what's happening in my world without having to worry about, um, you know, whether or not I can get access to my research that is still sitting in my office at uni. I've got huge boxes of archives that I just physically couldn't get out of my office back to home, mainly because I don't have the space here to store it. Um, you know, books and books of things that go back 150 years. I don't have the space and it's also not safe for me to be holding it here. Um, so that's for me as a historian, I can't imagine what it's like for science students who have experiments to be doing every day um, or experiments that have been sitting there in their labs over a period of time that suddenly has to be left alone. That would just be, I imagine, heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. I'm lucky. I can take most of my books with me and most of my research is on my um, uh, hard drive. If I lose internet, I'm screwed. If we don't have the internet, I've got to say it's not a great service in Bendigo at the moment. Um, no comment on NBN. Um, but it's I'm just looking at my little study environment, which is the back room, the spare room in my house. We're lucky we have a spare room and I'm not doing it out in the kitchen table. I can close off. But um, I've lost work. There's a whole heap of um, work that I'm not getting. There's, so, you know, that's money, that's cash I don't have. Thankfully, again, I'm used to being poor. Uh, I come from a very low, work, low working class background, so poverty isn't a shock to me that it is to a lot of my cohort who possibly have not been in the situation of having no income. Um, and that's not a judgment. It's it's a real shock for them. Um and I'm having to walk my friends through a lot of, well, you need to apply for this at Centrelink, you need to go for 
um, this kind of support. I know where all of those supports are. And so I'm finding I'm spending a lot of my time um, supporting my friends in how to get that sort of support where they've never had to do that before. So, yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of work. Being poor has a high life administration cost. It takes a lot of time to go and deal with Centrelink. Um, and I won't go into the, you know, the obvious um, complaints about that system, but also the time spent writing up applications. If you think of all of the grants that you apply for as an academic, that's the same sort of thing that you have to do in daily life just to get access to a food package for the week. And they're the sorts of things that are happening for a lot of my friends, you know, that, that are not used to doing that. So they've got that extra shock of going, hang on, I have to go to a food bank? I didn't even know those things existed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's it's really huge. It's a really huge shift for a lot of people. Yeah, and you just think, what would, what would this be like if we didn't underfund and demonise welfare for the last few decades? Um, Experience oh, be like. Start me on that. Yeah, because I tell you what, some of the stuff that's coming through in my research about, um, uh, you know, looking after children that have been deserted on the gold fields, I swear, and I'm not exaggerating, there are comments made by people in the newspapers that are word for word the sort of crap that um, far right wing uh, moralists come out with today about people being on the dole. Um, so that shows how far ahead those kind of people have moved. So in terms of what the university has done, like I said, they, they moved really quickly on um, getting some financial support to students. They're still working through applications for that. And I got an email yesterday saying they'd had some some huge amount, something over 2,000 applications in the first week. And uh, I know at least one of my friends has been approved for it, which is terrific, and that's for emergency funding, straight up $3,000 to just survive, as well as some technology. And that's where my issue is, is the university was saying things like, well, you know, you can take your computer home from work, from university. I'm like, well, that's all good and well, but I don't have the space to set that up in. Mm-hmm. I'm also, I have a health and safety background. Um uh, there's going to be injuries that come out of this because the university's just not done any kind of assessment. It's been pack up, go, go home, work from home. It's just not feasible for, to expect that people can continue the same output um, by sending them home to do it, it's, let alone if they've got responsibilities or children in the house. Uh or in my case, cats jumping on the keyboard every 10 minutes. Um, but I think where the universities might, you know, really be able to help, especially for grad students, is the understanding that um, output is not going to be the same. There's a lot of students that are teaching and there's just been this automatic expectation that everyone can, uh, and if I hear it one more time, freaking pivot to online, that's going to be my, my word of the year is pivot, without any kind of training or support or knowledge or background in how to do that and still expect to get the same kind of results 
is just insanity to me. It's the definition of insanity. Sorry, I'm on a I'm on my little soapbox now. I'll um, I'll quieten down. It's That's okay. I understand, and I guess that pivot has kind of turned into a pivot, a leap, a jump, a somersault, a backflip. Um... Yes, apparently we need to be nimble. I'm not nimble. I'm 45 years old and 120 kilos, sweetheart. Nimble does not work for me. So I'm 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 going to pivot now. I'm going to do some pivoting from um from pandemic to I guess the tips and tricks you've acquired in this pandemic. And the question I've been asking everyone is, what is your go-to item to hoard? And I know we've spoken about this a little bit, but what's what are you looking at in the future in terms of things you may buy a few extra of on your next shopping trip? <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, Easter eggs. Um. <laughs> No, I, um, what have I been using the most of? I, in terms of tips and tricks, I'm finding that I am gardening, uh, which I had put aside for a long time. I got out in the garden the other day and I collect succulents and I just sort of let them go for the last six months because I've been working on the PhD. So this has actually been interesting i'm going i think i'm probably going to start hoarding succulents again because they're really easy to look after and by if you don't know what i mean by succulents i mean little cactuses and aloe veras um cute little easy to grow plants that you can just fill your backyard with but also if you've got a tiny kitchen you can put them along your windowsill and they're really easy to grow and you just when you see them uh on your little daily walks people have them in the front yard you can pick a little bit off um, and it grows really easily. The only issue I have with that is I've run out of potting mix already, and so now I'm looking at, oh, now I understand why bunnies are still open. Um, but that's another issue. In terms of food, I am, I am cooking so much. My initial response out of all of this was to just start making soups and stews, and I went out and uh, bought a um, slow cooker because my last one died finally last year and I'm hoarding and I really do think this is a, a in all seriousness stocking up on freezable foods while you're healthy now um, for when you get sick I am working on the basis of I will catch this thing at some point it's going to happen it is about reducing the severity of it and making sure that we're prepared for when it comes. I'm really concerned because my my mum is in a, a serious category. She has um, respiratory issues already, uh, and obviously she's you know over sixty. Um, so I'm making sure if you know both of us get sick at the same time, we're in trouble. But I want to you know that there needs to be frozen foods and easy to eat foods available. So. I'm hoarding my freezables and chocolate, so much chocolate I've already run out and I've sort of just thrown the idea of um, not putting on weight out the window, screw it. Um, if it keeps me sane, um, then that's what's worth it. And I keep thinking of people in Iceland during winter. What did they do? So I've, uh, this this isn't an entirely new um thing for people to be locked away inside for large periods of time in the northern hemisphere in the middle of winter 
you, you, you can't go outside that much, although apparently some of crazy people do. But that's where music comes in. I've started buying a lot of music online. I say buying because I don't like stealing music and I don't like um, not supporting artists. So I try to buy music from Bandcamp. And I'm listening to lots of really cool new music, um, Eurovision music, the Icelandic entry for Eurovision. Oh my god, that would that's just watch that video. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> I really need to get onto Eurovision now that it's not actually running. I think I need to maybe relive some of the best years of Eurovision um, to keep my spirits up. <laughs> Yeah, I was really disappointed when I heard it wasn't running because it's a big thing in our household and we get right into it and, you know, pick our countries. And I had already decided to go with Iceland. And as much as I love Montaigne and have been a fan of Montaigne for a number of years already, uh, I was um, I saw the Iceland entry and just um, nah, loved it. So, yeah, I'm hoarding music, listening to lots of music, and I'm starting to draw. Uh, so... Um, I'm drawing again, which is a new thing, but also, and this is going to sound really crazy because I have insomnia really bad. I'm playing with my photo editing app on my phone and putting it to good use by turning them into little postcards to send to my friends. Uh, but a num- oh. number of friends that are in quarantine, uh, or they're self-isolating because they've returned from overseas, things like that. Uh, so, uh, I muck around with, say, photos of their dogs and put the dogs into a Van Gogh painting or something, just really stupid stuff, um, and then turn it in. There's there's apps you can get where you can turn it into postcards and, you know, just pay to send it. it it'll get posted out to them as a, as a cute little card. And those have started arriving in my friends' letterboxes and they're loving it. But I'm also just getting as much enjoyment out of spending half an hour mucking around with photos on my phone. So That sounds amazing. I, I really love that idea and it's something I'm going to have to look into. Um, and I think just your, your – I did not know this question would lead down this route of first succulents and then Eurovision music and now postcard – creating apps it's it's been a wonderful journey <laughs> anyone who knows me will go yeah yeah that's tash all over the place um i'm doing <laughs> i'm doing all of those ridiculous facebook quizzes not the ones where they're fishing for your um password but the whole you know name 10 jobs that you've done and one of them is a lie and i've got like this list of 10 outrageous jobs and all my friends are going all of those are true <laughs> Oh, well, I'm happy that you've got these things to, um, I think, you know, we all need to be looking out for opportunities to um, take our mind off what is just, an, as you said, an unprecedented crisis. And um, I feel like maybe I've been thinking that one of my goals is to maybe try and keep a plant alive during this period, but maybe a succulent could be a more achievable goal for me. Absolutely. Um, I mean, they. Uh, some people say it's really hard to kill a succulent, but um, it's not. You can overwater them. And especially coming into winter, what you want to do is put it in a pot, put it on your windowsill and just look at it each day. Don't do anything else than, than that. Maybe a little bit of water once a week. Otherwise, they're just really funny little plants to look at. Oh, that's wonderful. 
Well, um, thank you, Tash, for having this discussion with me. I, I just I have so many thoughts in my head now and just, wow, it's, it's been a really valuable discussion for me to learn about your research and these tips and tricks. I hope you've enjoyed um, having this discussion as well. Oh, I always love talking about myself for an hour, mate. Absolutely. Um, so if, if anyone out there also wants to talk about themselves for an hour, you can um, send me a, a Twitter message. Um, my Twitter is at Timothy Caveritas, or you can go to phdpandemic.com.au and the details are there. Um, Tash, is there anything from your own work that you'd like to plug or share about before we sign off? Uh, well, if you want to look at me on Twitter, it's at Thornbury Rocks, Thornbury as in the suburb rocks um and just swear language warning on that though um i'm not overly professional on that handle so uh otherwise no not really awesome i'm, I'm looking forward to following you on twitter now and seeing more about all these amazing things <laughs> thank you very much for having me oh no thank you for taking the time on a friday morning um and i guess for those of you out there who are currently stuck at home doing a PhD. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about your peers and what they're doing so far. Um, I hope that you'll take the time maybe to chat with me in the future. Remember to keep washing your hands, do all your physical but not social distancing. Make sure you stay in touch with your friends and family. And yeah, good luck in this brave new world.